Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. Okay, welcome everyone. We're going to do Acts of the Apostles today. I know it's been a little while. We'll get a few weeks in, and then we'll start up again after I get back from vacation. So, and then we get close to Lent, and so we'll figure it out. So, um, Acts of the Apostles, as you all know, is the next book after the four Gospels, and so it's it's one that that is a continuation actually of the Gospel of Luke. And we'll get into that, but I'm going to read for our opening prayer the, uh, the description of the early Christian community. That's chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. So the whole group of believers was united, heart and soul. No one claimed private ownership of any possessions, as everything they owned was held in common. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus with great power, and they were all accorded great respect. None of the members was ever in want, and those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money from the sale of them to present it to the apostles. It was then distributed to any who might be in need. Sounds like wonderful and and perfect. But there's this ideal that that, um, Luke always tries to drive people toward. So, Lord, help us as we study the book of Acts to be able to understand your plan as we see it in the eyes of the early church, as the Holy Spirit progressed in the church and your gospel went out into the world. Help us to be able to bring it into our own minds and hearts as we study, learn, and pray with the book that was written by Luke. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so first of all, I'm going to begin just by a brief summary of the book of Acts. And the author of the book of Acts is, as you probably know, um, Luke. And this might be the Luke of tradition, the one that's mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. He was a Syrian Gentile physician and companion of Paul. Um, He also stayed with Paul in his imprisonment. Um, which is Philemon chapter 24, has a brief description of that. There's not a whole lot written on or in the Gospels about Luke, um, but it's debated a little bit whether this is the same Luke who wrote the Gospel. And one of those reasons is just because of the style and um, some of the unknowns. Like it seems that Luke doesn't know a few things that he should know if he was a companion of St. Paul. And also there are little hints here and there that that he really didn't seem to know his medicine too well either. Um, But what we do know about Luke is that he definitely was someone who was very well educated. Of all the books in the New Testament, his his Greek is actually the most eloquent. So it's it's the most um, well-written and grammatically correct um, Greek. And so for that reason, they know that he was well-educated. He writes in the style of an ancient historian. But unlike most ancient historians, he does include 
a theological thread which goes through the whole thing. And he also has, even though he does tend to seem like he was a Gentile in origin, um, it does also seem that his knowledge of the Old Testament and his knowledge of Jewish ways and tradition is much greater than normal Gentile converts would have had at that time. So it shows that he had a foot in both worlds to a large degree. We don't know exactly why that's the case. Um, it is true that a lot of Gentiles were what they called God-fearers, and those were people who weren't technically Jews, but they were ones who really admired the Jewish faith, and for that reason they studied it, learned it, and even participated as much as they could in a lot of the rites and rituals of the Jewish faith, even though they weren't technically Jewish. You know, so you'll hear that every once in a while in the Gospels when they'll talk about someone you know, who was a God-fearer. You know, once they came to Jesus and said, you know, please help out this, this man because he's very generous to the synagogue and he's very generous to our people, you know, even though he's not technically Jewish. And so that was actually um, something that was known back in those days. And at some point, obviously, St. Luke became a Christian. And that's, of course, played out because he wrote the um, Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. Now, originally, this, this book was in two parts. So you had the first part, which is the Gospel of Luke, and then added to that is the second part, which is the Acts of the Apostles. Now, we, when we look at the Bible, there's the Gospel of John between Luke and Acts of the Apostles. So it might seem to us that the Acts of the Apostles came at a later time or was you know, a, a totally different book altogether, but that's not really the case. It, that ended up happening when, in the mid-100s A.D., they decided they wanted to collect the Gospels in the first part of the New Testament, and then they put Acts of the Apostles immediately after that. So, but originally it was written to be um, two books, but were connected in the author and the style and the theme and the theology, which begins in Luke, ends with the ending of Acts of the Apostles. So that's always something to keep in mind. I'm looking at the date. This, uh, the, the date of Acts of the Apostles is certainly after 61 to 63 AD, and that's because it describes Paul's captivity. You know, Paul was arrested. He, was, he, was, he appealed to Caesar, went to Rome, and there were you know, some descriptions of what was going on at that time. Now, it doesn't specifically mention the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So that would have been a huge event in Israel, the destruction of the temple. Um, the temple was the center of Jewish religious worship. That's where their sacrifices took place. And the destruction of the temple would be what would, would really change the Jewish religion in, in many respects, where it would be much more focused on the scripture and on synagogue and uh, participation in, in the faith in less, um, well, less public ritual fashion. And so that happened after the destruction of the temple. There was a council called Jamnia, and so after the temple, the Jewish leaders got together and they reformulated their faith to make it relevant to their current situation. Um, but Luke doesn't talk about any of this. But just because he doesn't talk about it doesn't mean necessarily that he wasn't writing after this had happened. Because one of the reasons why they think the gospel was written later is because the theology of the gospel is very much refined, and it seems like it's at a much later time theologically than some of the earlier works. Um, one example of this would be the Gospel of Mark, for example. 
And if you're looking at the Gospel of Mark, there's some discussion about when that might have actually been written, but most people think it was written you know, from between 55 and 75 AD, somewhere in that range. And most people actually think it was written a little later, based on internal evidence and other things. Well, if that's the case, since Luke tends to be a little more refined and uh, a little deeper theologically, more developed, then it would follow that this gospel and Acts of the Apostles would be written probably somewhere, you know, even up to about 80 AD. So it's certainly possible, but like I said, there's, there's no real knowledge for that. No one really knows for sure. They just have to kind of look at the evidence and make guesses. But what you can pretty much, um, you pretty much take with you is that whenever it was written, um, whether it was written just before the fall of the temple, which is possible, or after the fall of the temple, it was in the period of the early church. And St. Saint, uh, Luke, or Luke, um, he actually mentions that he wanted to write down these histories so that people would know the certitude of faith and that they would come to believe and the book would be something that would help them to know the reality and the history and the certainty of the faith that we believe. And so that was his intention. Okay, so there are a few things that happen with Acts of the Apostles. First of all, it completes the first part, which is the gospel. So you have the gospel and Acts of the Apostles completes that thought, completes the progression. Um, Just real briefly, if you look at the um, gospel of Luke, you do have a linear progression that happens when um, the whole point of Luke is to get Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. And there is a, a, a journey or a progression where Jesus starts in Galilee and goes to Jerusalem where he dies and rises from the dead. You know, so that's the, uh, like the travel theme of Luke. And there's actually one point even in the middle of Luke's gospel where Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. So that was where he was headed and nothing was going to stop him. He had a clear determination. Well, Acts of the Apostles is actually taking that to the next logical step. So it starts in Jerusalem, and then it goes to Samaria. And Samaria is the region that's not quite Jewish in the north of Israel or in the mountainous areas. And then it says after Samaria, then it goes to you know the, the Greek and the Roman area. And, and Rome actually is, figuratively speaking, you know, the, the ends of the earth. So the idea here is that you've got the gospel of Luke getting Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem, and then Acts of the Apostles is getting the church from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And there's a progression in there. It goes Jerusalem, then it goes Samaria, and then it goes to eventually Rome itself. So anyway, you can kind of see that through there. And he starts out with the first few chapters talking about what they call the kerygma of the gospel of the apostles. All right, so this is just the very brief uh, story of Jesus. Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Messiah. Um, these are things that happened. This is the, eyewit- the, the eyewitnesses who have said these things. And so that early Christian story uses the Greek word kerygma. And so if you've heard that word before, that's what it means. So the very... Um, primitive, Christian, preaching, gospel, you know, the basics. You know, and then it's only afterwards that they start to expound that and start bringing the significance of it. 
but the very beginning, you've got the, uh, the Holy Spirit coming down upon the apostles, the apostles going out into the street, and if you read the first descriptions of what they preached, it was very simple. Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead, these things happened, we are witnesses. You know, so they start with a very, very basic gospel, and then, of course, they expound it as Acts of the Apostles moves on. So that's the first part. Then also, um, Acts of the Apostles wants to show the influence of the Holy Spirit on the church. So the first part in Luke's gospel, there is this, this promise of the Spirit, and there's this presence of the Spirit, you know, from the baptism to Jesus saying things like, how much more would the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? You know, and so there are these um, premonitions of what will come. Um, but it's not fully actualized yet. Um, after Jesus dies, he rises from the dead. He appears to the apostles, but the apostles still have fear, and they're still not ready to take the gospel out into the streets. They needed the Holy Spirit to come and to give them that courage and to give them um, the, the fortitude and, and the energy to go out into the world and bring the gospel out there. And that happened after the Spirit came. So sometimes people will say, well, the gospel of Luke is the gospel of Jesus. And then Acts of the Apostles is the gospel of the Holy Spirit. You'll hear those expressions used sometimes. Um, There is an element of truth to that because Jesus, after he dies and rises from the dead, sends the Spirit on the church and then the church goes out and the Acts of the Apostles is demonstrating the growth and the vitality of the church. It's describing it historically, and it's describing it theologically. So anyway, so those are the, uh, the areas of Acts of the Apostles. It was showing a history which was common in the ancient world, but history in the ancient world was written differently than history in our present age. So like when we write about history, you guys getting cold? I'm seeing Martin's, no? Okay, Marty's grabbing checks. All right, so. It's just winter. But it was warm today. It was like 50-something. It's not now. Okay, it's nighttime. <laughs> so, so one thing about if you know your ancient histories, like if you've read any Greek or Roman history, you know, you'll, you'll notice that they don't often just state the facts, that there's, there's a greater reason for writing a history. And with Luke's um, gospel as well as Acts of the Apostles, he's, he's being historically accurate in a lot of ways, but there is something greater than literal history. I've mentioned this before. But sometimes what you want to express is the reality. And the reality sometimes is greater than literal history. And this means that if you want to explain something theologically, how Jesus is the Messiah, you can bring connections in there. And you can say, look, this happened in the life of Jesus, and these were the predictions in the Old Testament. Therefore, this is very similar to this, which reveals that Jesus is the Messiah and the fulfillment. It might not be 100% literally accurate, but it is accurate when you're looking at it theologically or um, as a fulfillment passage. Does Does that make sense? So sometimes we, in our scientific historical setting, we don't understand the ancient way of writing, which brings about further truths in a way that always, or isn't always exactly literal, but it is true. All right, so sometimes, uh, like I said, this is hard for us to grasp because we're, we're, we come from a scientific enlightenment type of mentality. Um, let me give you an example. Okay, so, 
So Luke says Simon of Cyrene helps Jesus carry the cross, right? John's gospel says Jesus picks up the cross himself and goes to his death. They both have truth, but they're describing things differently. See, Luke's describing the idea of discipleship, that that Jesus goes first, Simon picks up the cross and follows, his, follows after Jesus. So that's showing the type of disciple who knows how to follow, to pick up one's cross, and to do it in the style and likeness of Jesus himself, right? So there's a greater truth there, right? Now, St. John was describing it by Jesus picking up the cross himself and carrying it to Calvary. Well, that's because Jesus is a control. He wasn't an innocent victim who did not go willingly. You know, he purposely... Um, and willfully chose to pick up the cross and go to Calvary. So they're both true. They're just describing truths in different ways. Now, the historian would probably say, well, they should just say that, you know, well, Jesus picked up the cross and carried one part, and Simon carried the other, and, you know, and, you know that's where we would come from if we were going to write a history. But then we would miss the greater truth that would come with that, right? Because then we'd be so focused on this literal history that we'd miss out on the teachings around discipleship and who Jesus truly was. Now you with me? Good. So anyway, you'll see a little bit of that in Acts of the Apostles, and you'll see that with Luke's style of writing. Okay, so it gives a a history of events that are accurate, but sometimes tailored to bring about greater truths. Okay, so another thing that Luke does is he wants to present what he calls the way. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Christianity referred to as the way. Yeah, because it's, uh, um, it's, it's not just a belief. It's a way. It's a way of life. It's a way of belief. It's a way of living. And so he presents this through conversion, through prayer, through sharing, um, scripture, Eucharist, and organization, and fellowship, community. So anyway, he shows all those elements in the way that Acts of the Apostles unfolds as it continues, as the reader continues to go through the book. Okay, this also will show, as I mentioned, the development of the church, but it also shows some of the conflicts, it shows the unity, it shows the struggles, it shows the theological development, and some of these controversies that we just take for granted as being solved. You know, it's 2,000 years later, but imagine in the early church, for example, when you've got Jewish converts who are trying to follow the Old Testament Mosaic law, and then you have Gentile converts, and of course you have some questions that will be coming up, right? Well, how Jewish do these Gentiles need to be? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to follow the law? And, and so they had to struggle with that. They had, to, they had to really look at a lot of these questions and come to a conclusion that would help them to be able to live out the gospel, but to respect the Jewish traditions but to not necessarily hold the Gentile to the same standards when it comes to the Mosaic Law. How do you do that? And how do the two communities work together? You know, it'd be kind of hard, and they struggled with this. So there is a bit of an outline with the Gospel, or with the Acts of the Apostles, and so for the first eight chapters, chapter 1 through 8, or 2-8, you have the majority of the descriptions taking place in Jerusalem. The main characters would be, I'm going to get a glass of water, so hold on a second.
Okay, so the second part, so the first part's Jerusalem, chapters 1 up until chapter 8. And the second part is Judea and Samaria. So that's going north um, into the area um, just north of Jerusalem in the area and also around Samaria, which is the mountainous country in the north. And then that is chapters 8 through 13. So that's like the first stage, right? If you remember the Samaritans, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along, but that's because of a lot of history. But one thing you can say about the Samaritans is they did have a Jewish connection to them and their history and their being founded as a religion and as a people. So there was a connection there. And then after that, you have the Gentiles. So from chapters 13 through 28, you've got the gospel going out till the ends of the earth, which is symbolized in Rome. So that's why, for example, it may have been possible that the, the temple was destroyed and Luke didn't record it because his point of reference is he wanted to show in a linear progression how the gospel came from Jerusalem but ended up at the ends of the world, ends of the earth, which is symbolized in the uh, city of Rome, which is, of course, the Roman Empire, the capital of that. Okay, so with that understanding... We'll start in the beginning, and we're going to spend a little bit of time on the beginnings of the church. So I I opened up actually referring to this apostolic ideal, and there are a couple places where this happens. Another one is chapter 2, verse 42, and there's another description of the early Christian community. So I'll read this just to 47. So these remained faithful to the teaching of the apostles, to the brotherhood, and to the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. Okay, do you see that, um, that way being expressed there? You know, it's showing what the early Christians did. They were faithful um, to the teaching of the apostles, that's that kerygma, to the brotherhood, or the community, the church, and then to the breaking of the bread, celebration of the Eucharist, and then, then after that, and to the prayers. And so that's the, uh, the different prayers you know, of the church, and also whether it's in home or, or communally, but all these, these were working together. That was part of the way that St. Luke describes. And everyone was filled with awe. The apostles worked many signs and miracles. And all who shared the faith owned everything in common. They sold their goods and possessions and distributed the proceeds among themselves according to which one another needed. Each day, with one heart, they regularly went to the temple but met, their, met in their houses for the breaking of the bread. And they shared their food gladly and generously, and they praised God and looked at, were looked up, by, looked up to by everyone. Day by day, the Lord added to their community those destined to be saved. Okay, so you can see the early church. They would, they would gather for these different things. They would go to the temple together, but then they would come back, and then they would celebrate the Lord's Day. So, but at least at that point, the early converts, remember, were Jewish. So they were continually continuing the Jewish practice of the faith, going to temple, but then they would also celebrate the Christian understanding of the fulfillment of that, which is the you know Sunday Mass, Eucharist, celebration, what they call breaking the bread, the message of the apostles. So, so at least in the uh, early church, the Jewish converts continued to be active and faithful Jews, 
And at the same time, they had an addition to that, the Christian understanding of celebrating the faith. So, so both were happening at the same time. But you'll notice also that the church was in one accord. They were all, everybody's happy. You know, they were hugging each other, you know, sharing everything. It was just perfect and wonderful, right? Yeah, it seems that way. It wasn't actually. Um, when There are a few hints of this later on that we'll see, but, but you know, that was the ideal, right? And so that what, that's what Luke's trying to present, you know, is like we always have to try to do what we can to live out the ideal. And you'll remember in, in the Gospel of Luke that he had a special place for those um, who were in need and the idea that the church needed to especially reach out to the widows and the orphans and those who were destitute and those um, who needed charity. And so the idea that the church would be there for these people was kind of part of the, you know, that, that teaching, especially in Luke's Gospel, and also reflects Jesus' own ministry. Okay, so now a little later on, we do have Judas who is being replaced by Matthias, right? Now you've all heard of Matthias. All right. I'm going to turn the heat on because I see more and more. (laughs) Okay, so Matthias is the replacement for Judas. Now, yeah, Judas is scary, right? Because Judas is the one who killed himself or was killed. And then with, because there are two stories of Judas's death, actually. One is he kind of fell down the stones and hit his head, and the other one is he hung himself. But um, either way, since Judas betrayed Jesus and then died, then there's the idea we want to restore the 12 again. You know, the 12 represents, the 12 apostles like represents the 12 tribes of Israel. And so, so the idea of restoration, bringing that wholeness together after the resurrection, was something that the apostles thought would be the ideal. But you'll also notice that later on, they didn't really seem to say there needed to continue to be 12. You know, it was just that initial restoration after the resurrection. You know, then after that point, the bishops would go out and there would be more and more bishops, so it wasn't necessary only to have 12. Um, if you notice, you never hear of Barsabbas. Poor guy. Because they just basically like flipped a coin to see who was going to be the one. And, and at the end of it, Matthias won and Barsabbas didn't. And I was kind of thinking like, you know, boy, what a, what a bad toy, coin toss, you know. It's like, darn, I lost. I could have been one of them. But anyway, I'm sure he's a saint too, so I'm sure he's happy. But Okay, so there's the saints are happy in heaven and no one cares in heaven. But it's just kind of one of those little things of history. Okay, then afterwards we have Pentecost. And of course, Pentecost is the big experience of the early church. Prior to Pentecost, the apostles were fearful. They were locked in their rooms. Um, They were not uh, courageous enough to go out into the world and, and bring the gospel out. And after Pentecost, they had the courage and the strength they needed. But they were in the upper room, and then you have the description of the tongues of fire that come down, and just after that, they go out into the streets and start preaching the gospel. So it was the strength that they needed. Um, And it also, if you notice the description, everyone's understanding everybody. There was the story of the Tower of Babel when the arrogance of human beings thought that they could, you know, build a tower big enough to reach God, and that somehow they could control God in some way. And then 
you know, with the, the story of Babel is God struck them with many languages so they couldn't even understand each other. So the lesson in, in the Tower of Babel was the arrogance of human being, human beings and then how, how that arrogance and that sin brought division among people. Now the Holy Spirit brings people together, so it's kind of the anti-Babel. So instead of people like not understanding each other and having all these millions of languages, you have people understanding each other regardless of their language, and the people are brought together in the Spirit. Okay, so where you have Babel, here you have the opposite of that. So that, that's kind of a, a nice thing. If you don't know the story of Babel, go back. There's a reference, cross-reference, that you can find in most of your Bibles that will take you back to Genesis where that is. Okay, then we also have the growth of the church. So in chapter 241, it mentions that there were 3,000 who were baptized. All right, so you can imagine the disciples, you know, must have been going through a lot of water. So this was uh, in Jerusalem, so they were baptizing. And there's always a question about, well, how do they do it? You know, how do you baptize 3,000 people in one day, like they mention in that? It's quite an Easter vigil. You know, and the question is, you know, were they full immersion baptisms or, you know, did they, you know, and who knows. But you do know that they needed to kind of have production. Um, so they baptized quite a bit. Um, they also baptized households and families. And so it was kind of part of the, the description here. Okay, so then later in chapter 4, verse 4, there were 5,000 approximate believers. So the, the number of believers is increasing quite a bit. So you can see the power of the Spirit where you have the, the early Christians is like 12 and maybe a few more. And then just boom, after the Spirit, they go out into the street, baptize 3,000 people, and next thing you know, there are 5,000 more or less. So it just shows that the faith is really on fire now. You know, that the, uh, the Holy Spirit is really doing what, what Jesus promised, right? Jesus said that you will receive the Holy Spirit, and then this will be that new life that the church will have. And so that's being lived out too. There were miracles that were taking place. And just as Jesus did miracles, there was the description that Jesus said that, that when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will, do, you will see greater things than these. You know, so Jesus is doing miracles, and he tells his people that when the Holy Spirit comes, you will see even greater miracles than what I'm doing. You know, well, geez, Jesus you know, raised people from the dead, and Jesus you know, healed people and all this. Well, and, and all these things happened, actually, even with the apostles in the early church. Um, people were raised from the dead. Um, people were brought back to life. There were maimed and um, crippled people who were, were healed and cured. Um, different diseases were, were healed. There's a description of those many healings and things, and what that shows is that now that the Spirit's come, the church has the authority given from Jesus to be able to do things that he used to do. And so all those healings and and, and all those wonders and miracles take place with the church through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the one, and God is the one, who effects the miracles, but he uses the church to do it. All right, so, so in other words, Jesus' promise of using the disciples and using the church to do his ministry is being fulfilled in the Holy Spirit. All right, and that's important because that's a, a common theme in our even present-day theology that that whatever happens, like when the priest is, is consecrating the Eucharist, you know, the prayers and everything are done 
by the priest or by the church. You know, what I mean is the priest says the prayers and the Holy Spirit comes down, but the, the priest also is being in the person of Jesus acting on behalf of the church. And then what happens with the Eucharist happens because Jesus does it. But he uses the church to effect that change. Um, same thing when it comes to any miracles and cures and healings and you know, preaching the gospel. You know, Jesus is behind all of that, but he wants to use people to make it happen, which should be a humbling thing, right? See, that's kind of part of the spirit that lives in us, that, that we, if we approach our faith through humility, then Jesus does great things because we don't get in the way of that. So it's kind of like John the Baptist, you know, I need to decrease so he can increase. Okay, so I'm going to read one section, though. Chapter 5, verse 16. This just is like a one-liner, but it gives, gives you a flavor. Okay, so many signs and wonders... I'm going to go back to 15, but... Many signs and wonders were worked among the people at the hands of the apostles, so that sick were even taken out into the streets and laid on beds and sleeping mats in the hope that at least the shadow of Peter might cross some of them as he went past. People even came crowding in from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing with them their sick and those tormented by unclean spirits, and all of them were cured. So anyway, it was pretty powerful going on there. See, we, we very often attribute all those cures and miracles to Jesus in his ministry, but for some reason we tend to minimize the same things that were happening in the church after, the, after Pentecost, after sending the people out into the streets. Um, another thing that the Holy Spirit gave the church is the ability to persevere in persecution. So you see a lot of the apostles and disciples who were being, um, being persecuted, and instead of hiding and running and showing fear like they did in the Gospels, Instead, they were actually going out and, in spite of that persecution, continually, continually um, giving out the gospel's message and living it. All right, so that, that goes through, especially like this section, let's see, chapter 5, 30 through 33. Um, the apostle said, Obedience to God comes before obedience to men. And it was the God of our ancestors who raised up Jesus, whom you executed by hanging him on a tree. By his own right hand, God now has raised him up to be the leader and savior, to give repentance and forgiveness of sins through him to Israel, and we are witnesses to this. We and the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. All right, so you can see that the new style and courage that the apostles have. Uh, incidentally, that, that idea of hanging on the tree thing, um, Jesus died on a cross, but that's kind of a euphemism because it goes back to an Old Testament prophecy showing that even though um, people tried to shame you know, someone by hanging them on a tree, that the Messiah actually overcomes that. So, you know, of course, wood, tree, cross, it all kind of, that's an example of literal history or something greater, right? Good example of that. Whereas some people get all caught up on that. No, he was hung on a tree. It's like, well, they're missing the, the cross reference there. Okay. So now we're starting to have a little bit of the transition, though, because up until this time, it's all been um, what has been going on in Jerusalem and primarily Jewish Christian converts. And so now we've got the earliest missions and the bringing of the Gentiles into the church. And it starts with this institution of the seven. And there's 
many people think this refers specifically to the, the calling of deacons. And in a way it does, but it's much more than that. Because you have in the Christian community now um, what they call Hellenists. And those are the Greek-speaking or the Greek culture Gentiles who aren't Jews. And so they're starting to come into the church, and they're being neglected. And so at this point, they, the apostles decide that, well, we need to do something to meet their needs as well. And so they elected seven people from the Gentile um, congregation to be able to represent them. And so this is the institution of the seven. And so it's also you know, where the deacon comes from. It's the first time that word is used, kind of as helpers. So at this time, they're saying, it's not right for us to neglect the word of God and wait on tables. So we need to get other people to, to do this. And so the deacons, um, their primary mission in life is to be a servant uh, for the sake of the people. But because they all had Hellenistic names, Greek names, then that implies that they were primarily to be kind of like the go-between to make sure that the Gentile Christians had their needs met too. Okay, so there was uh, one of the deacons, name was Stephen. Stephen was arrested, he was preaching, and then later he went out and he was, he was trying to, even after he was arrested and even after it looked like they were going to kill him, he decided that well, this is a great time to preach. So he had his, his first great speech, and anyway, they lay, they lay that out in chapter 7. And what Stephen does is he preaches this idea of the, of the gospel of Jesus being something that goes back to Old Testament roots and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so he's, he's showing this like short history of the Bible. Now remember that when Luke's writing this, he's using this little speech of Stephen to help educate those who would be reading Acts of the Apostles to know something about the Old Testament message. Because it's not like the Old Testament for, for Gentiles came easily, but if, if they had this read to them, they would have at least a gist of what was going on in the Old Testament, like a summary. And then specifically about how that summary brings in the, you know, the gospel message. Well, eventually Stephen dies and he's, he's stoned for it. But as he is stoned, he becomes symbolic of dying the same way Jesus did. Okay, so let me read a little uh, part of this. So after Jesus preaches this, um, he says, You stubborn people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you always resisted the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did. Can you name a single prophet that your ancestors never persecuted? They killed those who forecasted the coming of the upright one. So he's saying what Jesus was saying. You know, your all hardness of heart is, is getting the better of you. You're missing the opportunity to receive the gospel, which, of course, that just angered them. And so when they heard this, they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. And he said, look, I can see heaven thrown open, like tore open, like, he, like symbolically, you know, tore open the heavens and seeing God. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Okay, so this goes back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, the, you know, the uh, image of seeing the, you know, the, the Messiah as the Son of God and the Son of Man. And all the members of the council shouted out and stopped their ears with their hands. You know, cover your ears so you hear, don't hear. And then they concerted a rush at him. They thrust him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses put their clothing 
at the feet of the young man called Saul. So Saul was there. And as they were stoning him, Stephen said in prayer, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and said out loud, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Okay, so you can see the parallel between Jesus' death and Stephen's, right? Yeah, so Stephen's the first martyr of the church. So there may have been others, but anyway, Stephen would be considered the first one. Okay, so at the end of this, we have the end of the ministry in Jerusalem. And now the mission is going to go to the next phase, which is chapters 8 through 13. And 8 through 13 is where the Gentiles begin to enter more and more into the picture, beginning with the northern part of Israel, Judea, and then the Samaritans. And then it'll also go south because you'll see, like for example, there's an Ethiopian eunuch who becomes converted. And his conversion, because he came from Ethiopia, there were these Old Testament prophecies that mentioned that when the Messiah comes, you know, that there would be people giving tribute like they did to Solomon, including the Queen of Sheba and Ethiopia. So anyway, we'll get to that, I guess. So the first, first one, there's kind of an interesting, there's an interesting little dialogue here between Simon the magician. So there was this, this magician called Simon, and Simon was one who used to do all these tricks and and uh, he was kind of like caught up in the, um, the magical arts. And it was one way he probably made money. Because when he, saw the, when he saw the Holy Spirit, he actually asked the apostles, you know, how much do I have to pay to get that same power so that I can do that? And of course the apostles said, no, this is free. God gives it to us free. You know, and, and that's a terrible sin to try to actually think you can buy or others should pay for the gift of the gospel which came to us free. Now, have you heard the word simony? No? See, the word simony refers to like selling of grace or selling of sacraments or selling of, of godly things. You know, you'll hear that word used every once in a while. So, for example, if someone comes up to me and says, you know, Father, I, I want to buy a baptism. You know, and it's like, well, you know, I can't say... I can't say, for example, like, I'm going to sell you a baptism or a confirmation, you know, because that would be simony, right? That would be like giving something that God gives freely and making people pay for it in, in like a monetary way. So anyway, but Simon actually converts. But some of the, uh, see what Simon the magician here, he comes to belief in Christ. He sees what the apostles does, but he doesn't quite get it. He thinks he can incorporate it into his lifestyle and his money-making scheme, whereas the apostles say, no, you can't. Anyway, so Simon converts fully. It's like in two stages. Um, there, there are some, some of the crazy conspiratorial um, types of works that talk about Simon going off and forming Gnostic sects and all this kind of thing, but, you know, Simon the magician, you know, he was, yeah. You don't need to worry about that. All right, so, but anyway, it is an interesting story because it, it brings about, like in the Old Testament, there were these people who were involved in, um, in different types of magical arts and things like that, and, um, you know, there was this condemnation in the Old Testament law and just as much in the New Testament. All right, so, then in, uh, we also have Philip, who was one of the early deacons, and he goes and he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. So there was an Ethiopian eunuch who was coming up 
to Jerusalem. And he met him and ended up baptizing him. And then this actually represents a fulfillment of, you know, the people in different, like different areas, especially in the south, coming up and giving homage. And so one example is Psalm 68, verse 31, and Zephaniah 3.10. So it's, it's kind of a fulfillment passage once again. The, you know, the, the whole rest of the world is going to recognize and pay homage to the truth of the gospel. All right, so that's part of that. So the Ethiopian eunuch gets baptized, and then Philip is snatched away. So it's almost like he's just kind of picked up and disappeared, you know. But that's kind of the, um, follows the Old Testament ideal, like when uh, um, Elijah was snatched away, you know, so it's kind of similar to that. Um, Incidentally, there are these little things that happen, like right after that, um, you've got Paul's conversion, which we celebrate today, the conversion of St. Paul, so that kind of worked out good. So the conversion of Paul, of course, was a, was a huge milestone in the life of the church. And I'm not going to get too much into Paul personally because we've got his letters and stuff coming up. So I figure I'll do an overview of St. Paul in you know, the, the following classes. But uh, Paul was converted. He had his conversion. He went to Ananias, who was in Syria, Damascus. And Ananias originally didn't want to bring him in and, and baptize him and do all this stuff. But, you know, the Holy Spirit came to Ananias and said, no, no, he's one of ours. <laughs> so he followed through. And then Paul goes back to Jerusalem. And uh, this is kind of the beginning of his missionary journey as well. Although he's going to um, go down to Arabia and do like an extended retreat before he actually begins his ministry. Meanwhile, we've got St. Peter, who finds Cornelius, who is a Gentile, Peter has a vision, and in this vision, he's got all these, which were formerly unclean meats, dropping down from the sky, and God's saying, eat. And Peter's like, I'm a Jew, I can't eat these things. And so God says, what I've made clean, I've made clean. Well, that means that the Gentiles actually are, being, are made clean by Jesus, and therefore, you know, they should be accepted into the faith because God has made them clean through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So after that point, um, Peter sees Cornelius, and then he baptizes him and his household. All right, so that was kind of the beginning of the Gentile converts in, in Mass. And so Peter gives it the, the rubber stamp of approval, and from that point, then the gospel begins to go out even more, more and more to the Gentiles. All right. Now, we're getting into Paul's mission. Um, This is the last part, chapters 13 through 28. And so this is where the gospel goes, you know, past Israel. And so now it's going into modern-day Turkey. So Asia Minor goes into Greece, um, eventually to Rome itself. And there were Christian communities that were started in um, in those missionary efforts as well. Okay, I need to get past here. So, like I said, I'm I'm going to talk more about Paul in the next class, but um, for now I'll give you a brief overview. Paul was born in Tarsus, which was the southeast coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And he was one who was a Roman citizen. 
His father, although he was Jewish, probably at that time you could buy citizenship if you were a prominent figure. And so Paul had Roman citizenship, which was a real advantage, actually. Um, he also was a Pharisee, so he was trained as a rabbinical Pharisee. He was taught by a Gamaliel, who was the most famous rabbi of the day. And so, so Paul actually mentions this in several spots, but um, he was also in, I think it was chapter 23, verse 6. That probably is. Yeah, we'll get back to that later. Okay, so anyway, this is why, because, because Paul was so well-educated as a Jewish rabbi who was a convert to Christianity through his conversion, um, he was able to give a lot of theological substance to the faith in a way that, that probably was not possible before that. And so Paul, for example, when he talks, especially in the book of Romans, he brings a lot of theological significance in a way that, that really kind of puts meat on the faith in a way that, that wasn't possible before him. So like last week, for example, when Jesus calls, um, let's see, Peter and Andrew and James and John, you know, they're fishermen, and he educates them and gives them the faith and sends them out into the world. And um, I mentioned that you would think that if God were going to do this, he would pick like the smartest and the brightest and the most talented and all this sort of thing, you know, but he chose fishermen. You know, well, in a way, God did choose the brightest and the most talented and all that because St. Paul would have been considered, you know, a very brilliant man as he was. And so God uses him as well as the apostles. You know, it's all kind of part of his plan. So in, in, in the Gospels, you'll hear, or not in the Gospels, but in Acts of the Apostles, you'll hear both names, Saul, and you'll also hear Paul. Well, Saul would be his Jewish name. It's like when you say it in Hebrew. And then Paul would be his Roman name. You know, so, so when he's primarily among Gentiles and, and uh, Romans and Greeks, he would say Paul. But when he's primarily with the Jewish people, he'd be called Saul. So that's why you hear two names. It's not like he was renamed like, like Cephas became Peter or something like that. Or Simon, Simon became Peter. He had a conversion. After his conversion, he had three major missionary journeys. So he starts out close to home, and then he goes a little farther west, goes into, on the second journey, goes into the, um, into the upper areas in the middle of Asia Minor, and then a little bit over in Greece, and then comes back. And then the third journey, he goes through Asia Minor into Greece, and especially hits the coastal cities and some of the bigger cities. After that, he gets arrested when he went back to Jerusalem and eventually appeals to Caesar and goes back to Rome. Okay, so those were his missionary journeys. And St. Paul is considered the missionary to the Gentiles. And that is true. He was the one who was able to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, but to do it in a way that he explained why the Gentiles are full heirs and receivers of the gospel because you know, the early church was struggling with that. And so Paul really you know, helped to expound why that's the case. Um, St. Paul also went to the Jews first, and then the Gentiles after that. The idea here was the Jews are the chosen people. They were the ones who were called by God. They have a special covenant. They are the chosen people. The Messiah comes from the Jews. So then afterwards, when the Christian community comes in, you have the Gentiles entering in, 
um, they are actually second. You know, they are full heirs, but, you know, the Jews were the ones who basically brought it about. And so, therefore, St. Paul, showing respect for that, always brings the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. All right? So it was just kind of part of his system. So he'd go into the synagogues. He would preach the gospel to the synagogues because, um, you know, the gospel is very much in conformity with the Jewish ways as well. All the early converts were Jewish. So Paul continues that. But then afterwards, he would go out and then uh, bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And then after he did both of those things, he would establish a church. So he would, he would bring the people together, Jews and Gentiles both, establish a church, kind of educate them, get them all settled in, appoint the leaders, and then after that he'd leave. You know, so it was a little different than today. Today you've, you know, you've got established churches and pastors are assigned and that sort of thing, and you have the leadership that already exists. But imagine if you had to figure out how to start everything all over again. You know, well, Paul had an ingenious way because he would bring in the Jews and the Gentiles, establish the church, bring in the leadership, educate everyone, and then say, see you later. I'll write you a couple letters later on. So it was kind of his style. So anyway, in his missionary work, um, Paul had three missionary journeys. I mentioned that. And afterwards, he came back to Jerusalem. And he came back to Jerusalem every once in a while because that was considered, you know, kind of where the apostles, like Peter and, and a lot of the other apostles were still in Jerusalem, although they were starting to move out around this time too. But there was still the idea of, like, the mother church being in Jerusalem and that being a religious center as well. And so he would come in. I mentioned earlier that there was the conflict about, okay, now, how Jewish do the Gentiles need to be if they're going to be Christian? So imagine, for example, if you're, if you're a Jewish practicing Jew who has become Christian, all your life you've been following the Jewish law. So you continue to follow the Jewish law. It's second nature. It's what you're about. So it helps you to relate to the Mosaic law, but at the same time you accept Jesus and that new law, which he brings as well, that fulfills the old law. And in that process, you continue your Jewish practices, but you're also you know, a Christian. By the way, this, this existed um, at least a few hundred years after the time of Jesus, that there were Jewish Christians who did both. There are some synagogues, for example, up around Capernaum that we were looking at when we were in Israel, and you can see um, some ancient Christian art, which was Jewish in style, and it was also at a synagogue. So it's kind of interesting, actually. Our, we tend to think of history as being so neat and clean, but it's not always so neat and clean. You know, sometimes there's a lot of overlap. Well, in this case, the early church decided we need to settle this issue, so they all got together, and it would be considered the first council, the Council of Jerusalem, where all the church leaders came together, and they said, okay, what is the expectation for Jewish Christians as well as Gentile Christians? So they very quickly came to the conclusion that we don't need to hold the Gentiles to the same um, standard as we do the Jews when it comes to following the Old Testament law. And so what they end up coming up with is that they will be following the, uh, the covenant of Noah. Because right? after Noah, remember, this is like everybody, because there's the flood, right? And there's this understanding in this covenant of Noah where they can eat strangled animals and drink blood and do this sort of thing. So the idea is that 
well, the Jews have to keep this, but the Gentiles still need to keep the covenant law that was established with Noah. So they should, you know, not do these things which are going to be abhorrent to the Jews. So, for example, they didn't want um, the Gentile Christians sitting down at table across from the Jews and, you know, and drinking blood and eating animals sacrificed um, to other gods and this sort of thing. So it was kind of like a compromised position that allowed both communities to get along, even though they might practice their faith differently, but there's still a unity. Does that make sense? So this was kind of the compromised position of, of the uh, Council of Jerusalem. The Jews and Gentiles um, both follow the covenant, but the Gentiles, because they weren't Jews, start with Noah, whereas the Jews are, you know, the Ten Commandments um, and all that, but more than that, the 613 additional commandments that they would follow in the Mosaic Law. Yeah, it's complicated, isn't it? <laughs> the history is actually a lot more complicated than I'm making it even. Um, so anyway, Paul goes out and he starts founding churches. So Corinth, Ephesus, Thessalonica. Thessalonica. These are the ones that eventually become the epistles that we'll read about later. And so when he goes to these different churches, he founds the churches, and then later he keeps in contact by writing letters. And I already mentioned how he does that. But... There is actually a, a change that happens in chapter 16, verse 10, where up until that time, it was always described as, you know, he, like St. You know, Peter, and Paul did this, and Peter did this, and, you know, Apollos was in there. And, and then after this point, it becomes, there's this, what they call the we narrative. So it becomes a second person plural. Well, that's because the author of the book actually begins to accompany Paul in his journeys. And so that's why we say the Luke of tradition, you know, because the traditional understanding of Luke as being a companion of Paul is really bore out by these we passages because whoever this is who's writing this was a companion of St. Paul and traveling with him. So they talk about that. So eventually, um, St. Paul gets imprisoned and then he has his last journey which will take him um, to Rome. Um, before that, there is, there is something that's uh, interesting here. Okay, so chapter 21, verse 21. So now. Okay, so this has to do with the, the, the Jews and the Gentiles. And then Paul comes back, and Paul's getting accused by some people in the Jewish community of being a Jew but not following the Jewish law, and basically encouraging Jews to forsake the law in becoming Christian. And St. Paul actually doesn't do this. And so here's uh, you know, St. James, for example. He's the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. They gave glory to God when they heard this, and then they said, You see, brother, okay, they're referring to Paul now, you see, brother, how thousands of Jews have now become believers, all of them staunch upholders of the law. And what they have heard about you is that you instruct all Jews living among the Gentiles to break away from Moses, authorizing them not to circumcise their children or to follow the customary practices. What is to be done? A crowd is sure to gather, for they will hear that you have come. So this is what we suggest that you should do. We have four men here who are under a vow. Take these men along and be purified with them and pay all the expenses connected with the shaving of their heads. There's a Nazarite vow, which 
many Jews would take these vows, and after they're done with their vow, they would shave their heads, and then they would go to the temple and do purification rituals. All right? So that's what they're talking about here. So take these men along and be purified with them and pay their expenses. This will let everyone know that there is no, re- no truth to the reports that they have heard about you, and that you too observe the law with your way of life. About the Gentiles who have become believers, we have, we have written, given them our decision, that they must abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood and the meat strangled animals, and from illicit marriages. Okay, remember the law of, uh, of Noah. So the next day, Paul took the men along and was purified with them, and he visited the temple and gave notice at the time when the period of purification would be over and offered what would be presented on behalf of each of them. Okay, so Paul does this. But unfortunately, some people see Paul hanging out with some of these Gentiles, and they assume that Paul brings the Gentiles into the temple, which would be a desecration for some of the observant Jews. Well, Paul didn't do that, but the rumor gets out. Next thing you know, there's an angry mob, and then they want to kill Paul. And so they basically arrest Paul because the, um, the, the army around there basically take him away to preserve his life and then arrest him and hold him. And then Paul has an opportunity to preach to the King Agrippa. So anyway, this is how Paul gets arrested in the first place. But while he's arrested, people begin accusing Paul of stirring things up and causing problems. And Paul just keeps saying, you know, when he meets with the Sanhedrin, wait, I'm a Jew, I'm just like you guys. It's just that, you know, I'm a Pharisee Jew. Because he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a Jew um, like the Sadducees, you know, which kind of caused division amongst the uh, council of elders. But when he's arguing, he's basically saying, you're mad at me because I'm a good Pharisee, and I believe in the resurrection, and I believe in heaven, and this is proof of it, that Jesus, you know, you know, all these things happened. Of course, you know, the argument continues to be a controversy until he's, he claims his Roman citizenship, because the Jews wanted to try him. And he says, well, I'm a Roman. I have to be tried in a Roman court. And he knows that if he goes to Rome, he'll have more opportunity to preach the gospel. So he uses that to his advantage, and to the gospel's advantage. And eventually he gets to Rome, and he will be eventually beheaded, which was considered a better punishment than actually being crucified, like St. Peter was crucified. Yeah, but if you think about it, I mean, if you're beheaded, it's over quick. If you're crucified, I mean, that's hours of, of excruciating pain and suffering. So because St. Paul was a Roman citizen, he actually could have the better of, of the two, you know. I know it doesn't sound like it, but, you know, and then that whole thing, he, he eventually goes and he, he's, he's um, um, educating people and preaching because I guess when this imprisonment that he wasn't, like, locked up in a cell where he could not have contact with others. He continued to educate and preach and, and bring people to Christ, even from his prison cell. And he even wrote different epistles, which are the captivity epistles, while he's in prison. Like uh, Philippians, for example. There's a few of them. but So that, that's when all that was taking place. Um, okay, an interesting passage. Have you ever heard of Eutychus? No? So you'll like this one. Okay, on the first day of the week, we met for the breaking of the bread. Paul was due to leave the next day, and he preached a sermon that went on into the middle of the night. A number of lamps were lit on the upstairs room where they assembled, and as Paul went on and on, 
A young man named Eutychus, who was sitting on the windowsill, grew drowsy and was overcome by sleep and fell to the ground three floors below, and he was picked up dead. Paul went down and stooped to clasp the boy, saying, There's no need to worry. There's still life in him. And then he went back upstairs where he broke bread and ate and carried on talking until he left at daybreak. (laughs) They took the boy away alive and were greatly encouraged. So anyway, just remember that. If I'm going on and on, someone passes out. You know, it's all for the sake of the gospel. No, it's all for the sake of the gospel. So we used to have in seminary the the Eutychus Clause that that if anyone, like, passes out and hurts himself, then it's the fault of the preacher, you know, so. But, um, (laughs) yeah, there's, there's also something interesting about when Paul goes to Athens, because it shows a very clear, um, this is chapter 17, 16 through 22, Um, St. Paul uses enculturation in a very, very positive and um, not not so effective, but it kind of set the stage for the church's missionary style, where you go and you appreciate the good things of the culture in which you go into, and then at the same time, you give them the gospel and allow them to own it in a way that makes sense to them. You know, that's why, for example, if, if you know, let, let's say that we want to go and evangelize somewhere, and so we're going we're gonna to go to Africa, and the first thing we say they have to do is become Americans so that they can become Christians. You know, so that's what you would call, you know, not enculturating. But what we would want to do is appreciate their culture and then bring the gospel to them in a way that they could assimilate that in their own style. Okay, so St. Paul actually demonstrates that um, in Athens. So that was kind of an important part. Also, one last thing, and then I'll quit. So there were disagreements. So I'm trying to find out where. So let's look at uh, chapter 15, verse 36. Okay, so here's Paul, and he's getting ready to go on his journey. On a later occasion, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord, so that they can see how we're doing. And Barnabas suggested taking John Mark. But Paul was not in favor of taking along the man who had deserted then in Pamphylia and refused to share in their work. There was a sharp disagreement so that they parted company. And Barnabas sailed off with Mark to Cyprus. Before, Saul, before Paul left, he chose Silas to accompany him and was commended by the brothers to the grace of God. So it's not like, you know that perfect ideal? It's not like that perfect ideal was always lived out. There are always tensions and arguments and things like that, but eventually they figure it out. So in this case, you know, I'm not going if he goes. You know, seems kind of, kind of funny, but anyway, there you go. All right, so there's Acts of the Apostles. So um, next week we'll do an overview on Paul, and um, then we'll probably have a couple weeks to, to rest up and read all the epistles before we start up again. So is there any question about Acts or anything in Acts before we finish up? Yeah. Um, kind of well. Luke actually is okay with the Jews and Gentiles together, but so was Paul. Um, Paul actually, we'll see this a little more in his epistles, that he actually was a practicing Jew, and he wanted to make sure that the Jews, because they were the chosen people, they were the first ones to hear the gospel message before he even went and preached to the Gentiles. And even afterwards, 
he would bring them together in the same church and help them to be part of the same church, even though they might have some different styles about how they practice. So the, the conflict became really what they would call these Judaizers, and that were the Jews who were trying to make the Gentiles become Jews to follow the gospel. And St. Paul is very adamant in saying, no, you don't need to become Jews to follow the gospel. If you're already Jews, fine, stay Jews, and that's fine. But you can't impose that on the Gentile converts. And so that was the real controversy. St. Paul's approach, though, was that the Jews can continue being Jews and be Christians at the same time, but remembering why they're Christian, and it's not the law who saves, but it's Jesus that saves. Well, nothing's ever perfect. Yeah, they, uh, yeah, I'm sure they had a lot of dynamic between them. You know, for the Jews and the Gentiles to be worshiping in the same church, breaking bread, and you know, and this kind of thing. Obviously, there were problems. That's why they had the Council of Jerusalem, because they were trying to figure out, well, how can we make these two groups live together and still be Christian, united in Christ, but have different dietary and purification rituals and styles you know, in cultures. So, you know, it was a challenge, to say the least. That was the first major controversy in the church. Yeah, one that we take for granted because... Yeah, St. Peter, because he went to Cornelius' house and he baptized them and he said, look, they're equal heirs like we are now. And what God has made clean, we must not call unclean. And he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles together. And then later on in one of Paul's Gospels, St. Peter uh, starts getting a little wimpy. And so he, in the, in the, the eating, when everyone's eating together as part of the church, he makes sure that he only eats with the Jews and he's not eating with the Gentiles. And so St. Paul says, you're a hypocrite, Peter. You know, you need to practice what you preach. You know, that the Gentiles, you know, have no need, you know, to be Jews. And so anyway, so St. Paul um, kind of lambasts him a little bit. And, but it seems like St. Peter said, yeah, you're right, okay. <laughs> but it was just kind of, you know, you kind of follow the crowd and what, what comes natural. And, you know, so anyway. Paul's pretty good about coming out and saying. Paul's kind of blunt. Yeah. Yeah. So. I was going to say voices of opinion. <laughs> yeah, but, but see, sometimes people think that Paul was just mean. But if you read the, the epistles, you know, like, and you read them like with the uh, um, understanding about how he's expressing his love for his people, you know, he, he says, I would rather die myself and be thrown into the, the pit of hell so that all the Jews would be saved, you know, and, and also the Gentiles. You know, I mean, he's, he truly has a passionate love for his people. and. He expresses that in many different ways. So, anyway. Yeah, yeah. He was passionate. I think he was kind of type 1 after conversion. It's just that he knew the truth. What are those types, anyway? I don't know them, so maybe I'm getting in trouble by mentioning what that means. But, yeah. I know. All right, so next week we're on to Paul. So, try to... Try to read a little bit of the epistles if you can, any little introductions, and we'll have a a good long discussion on St. Paul. So see you next week.
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's Word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the Scripture. May God bless you.